This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Cottonwall Campus and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2014 in the Barbican in London. Um, so after the last academic year saw the rise of blurred lines bands, uh, the censure of, of UCL's Nietzsche Club uh, and trigger warnings on academic texts, uh, the first victim of this year's heavily scrutinised freshers uh, season um, was the LSE Men's Rugby Club. Uh, who've generally shown you know, that sensitivity about the way students interact today uh, seems set to continue uh, with disastrous consequences for student autonomy. Uh, only a few weeks into term uh, and students at Sussex University have already staged a kissing after an offhand comment were made uh, to a gay couple snogging in the aisles of Sainsbury's. Um, so to discuss uh, these and other trends... Uh, we thought we'd gather together a panel of uh, writers not too far removed from the student experience themselves uh, to unpick why students' personal lives have become so significant uh, in public discussions uh, around social life. So I'm very pleased to introduce our panel of speakers, and I'm going to introduce them in the order that they're going to be speaking. Uh, so sitting to your left, uh, we have Tom Bailey, who's a recent graduate of UCL, uh, and the writer for Spiked. Uh, sitting next to me, we have Harriet Williamson, who's a blogger and columnist, and has written for The New Statesman, The Independent, The Sunday Times, and The Huffington Post. Uh, then we'll have Ella Mae Russell, uh, who's just finished her Master's at Sussex University, uh, and also writes for Spiked. Uh, and finally, uh, we'll end with Michael Segalov, who's the Communications Officer at the University of Sussex uh, Student Union. Uh, he's also a journalist is written for The Guardian, The Independent, and more. Um, so now that we have over 500,000 uh, students uh, studying at university, um, are the disputes, I've mentioned, you know, uh, the basis for an inclusive new politics, uh, or is our time at UNA um, more about re-socialising the next generation? Uh, Tom, do you want to start us off? Uh, yes, I'm going to talk about... Um the idea of safe spaces as applied to university campuses. So you most like to hear safe spaces being used as a concept for the internal organisation of self-styled radical political organisations such as London, um, Occupy London Stock Exchange, which drew up a much lampooned safe space code of conduct in 2012. However, the concept and practice of safe spaces is also being applied to the university campus in general. Some universities explicitly label and designate campuses as safe space, while others refer to universities as safe spaces when referring to the impl implementation of a certain policy or the banning or censor of something on campus. The idea is that certain ideas or forms of speech pose a direct threat to the safety of certain or all students. Historically, safe spaces emerged among LGBT and women's groups. These safe spaces were intended as a haven in a heartless world as a retreat from the perils of what was um, a misogynistic and a homophobic society. Whatever one's criticisms of such prefigurative politics... It was just essentially a voluntary collection of private individuals choosing how themselves to organise amongst each other. The problem comes when such concepts and principles are applied beyond the confines of narrow support networks. Safe spaces are, by definition, spaces where nothing is at stake. Safe spaces require a lack of questioning of certain principles for fear of such questioning creating an unsafe environment. This may be understandable in the context of what safe spaces originally were for. However, the problem is when such concepts and practices are applied outside there exist many criticisms of attempts of applying safe spaces policies to political organisations, primarily, primarily that it creates a homogenous zone of head nodding, for no one can disagree without committing an ideological sin. 
Most destructive, however, is the application of it to university campuses. As mentioned, safe spaces are basic areas where there can be little fundamental disagreement. Spaces where nothing is at stake, for one must always be in ideological conformity. Whereas in private political spaces or organisations, this perhaps could result in bureaucratisation or perpetual expulsion and splits within the organisation or people having to carry out sort of self-criticism sessions. Uh, when applied to the university, it invites censorship and destruction of principles of open debate and inquiry on university campuses. For example, earlier this year, a man by the name of Dr. Al-Haddad was invited, by SOAS, uh, invited to speak at SOAS by the Islamic Finance and Ethics Society um, to speak on questions about Islamic finance. This caused controversy due to the speaker in question having previously made pernicious remarks um, about uh, LGBT, the LGBT community. In opposition to Al-Haddad speaking, it was decried that his presence would make an unsafe environment for LGBT students. Uh, like in 2013, uh, feminist author and activist Judy Bindle was invited to speak at a debating union uh, at Manchester University about pornography. This caused uproar on the basis that her previous anti-transgender comments would make some students feel unsafe on campus. What we can see here is the, uh, is the extension of an idea, the idea of safe spaces beyond where it can be feasibly applied. The idea of safety on campuses is extended to mean prevention of certain ideas or speakers who hold certain ideas from being present on campus. Speakers uttering outlandish and inflammatory statements have opposes no direct harm to students. What is really meant by safety is discomfort, and there can be no guarantee, and there should not be any guarantee from discomfort. There has, all, has of course, always been a strain of censorship within student politics. However, this was generally a tool, albeit a mistaken one, to oppose certain ideologies. There is, of course, much to disagree with such censorship. However, censorship now is being driven by a more inward-looking idea, the idea of keeping students safe. Rather than saying, in the past, when censorship by students carried out, we don't want this person speaking because we want to fight their ideas, it seems, which is disagreeable, but now more often than not, well not regularly, it seems more often that the language of safety is used to justify censorship. Speakers and idea are often bound on the grounds that their presence or utterance endangers the safety of students on campus. This seems to be part of a more general inward-looking trend within student politics, where student union policy formulations have become increasingly concerned with policing the behaviour of students rather than being a vehicle for and a voice of students engaging with politics in the outside world. I'd like to start off by thanking Joel for inviting me to speak today and my fellow panellists for turning up and all you people for coming to watch this. The issue of censorship on campus is inherently difficult to address. Censorship is by its own definition negative and generally undesirable. The free discussion of social and political ideas is integral to a healthy and vibrant academic culture. However, there are some ideas that are harmful, namely those that encourage racist, sexist, homophobic and transphobic styles of thought and behaviour. All students have the right to enjoy their university experience free from harassment and discrimination. And complete freedom to say and do as we like individually can prevent this. Unfortunately, limits must be placed on free speech. This is why the NUS refuses to give, a, give fascist and extremist voices a platform in cap, campus elections and debates. Would you want a member of the EDL to speak at your campus? If your answer is yes, you should consider whether you'd give the same answer as a person of colour or as a Muslim student. If you wouldn't mind the radical feminist Julie Bindle speaking at your, your university, perhaps you would feel differently as a trans person. Bindle advocates reparative therapies for trans people, similar to the therapies used by some extreme Christians for um, gay and lesbian individuals. Students are and should be involved in debating and protesting on issues 
that affect their um, campuses, the UK and the global community. The 2010 marches against university cuts and the massive hike in tuition fees, fee prices, are exactly what we should see more of from students. University attendees should be showing solidarity to one another in a time when they have all but been abandoned by the political establishment, lied to by the Liberal Democrats and squeezed for every penny they have. I'd like to see students creating a real community on their campuses where bigotry and discrimination are not tolerated. Sexism, racism, homophobia and transphobia are not merely university issues. They are wider structural problems of inequality and they should be tackled wherever they are found, including on university campuses. In a recent NUS survey, a quarter of the 2,000 respondents had experienced unwelcome sexual advances. One in seven students had had experienced serious sexual assault and two-thirds had experienced verbal or non-verbal instances of harassment. Two-thirds had heard jokes about rape and sexual assault on campus. This is clearly a problem of epidemic proportions and must be addressed urgently. In the last two weeks alone, the LSE Men's Rugby Club was slammed for distributing a leaflet at their freshers' fair that referred to women as slags, trollops, mingers and sloppy birds. It mocked female athletes and used homophobic language. Three members of the Vets Rugby Club in Edinburgh were reprimanded after demanding STI checkups from female medics and chanting gang rape at them. There's no excuse for this kind of behaviour. It should always be taken seriously by students, student unions and the university administration. The NUS campaign to eradicate lad culture from campuses has been dismissed as an example of mistrust in students by the assistant editor of Spiked, Tom Slater. He also described the targeting of lad culture as classist, which flies in the face of evidence that misogynistic behaviour is as prevalent at top universities where the cohort is overwhelmingly privileged and students from working class backgrounds are a minority. The LSE Rugby Club leaflet specifically mocked King's College as a polytechnic rival, calling students their scum who would one day work for LSE graduates. There is nothing inherently working class about misogyny, Um, sexist behaviour and language, and to turn it into a class issue spectacularly misses the point. Slater has also been quoted as saying that young women are now more resilient and do not need protecting from the behaviour of male students. The idea that you should be resilient enough to deal with catcalling and sexist jokes is ridiculous. Do we tell people of colour that they should be resilient enough to deal with racist jokes or people making monkey noises? No, they shouldn't have to deal with it, full stop. The issue isn't actually one of protection, it's one of decency. Students should treat one another with respect and no one should be branded weak for reporting instances of harassment or or assault. In the face of an uncaring political elite that have all but thrown students to the wolves in terms of increased tuition fees for no discernible increase in the quality of education or teaching, Years of future debt, a difficult job market and a heavily commercialised university experience. Students need to stick together more than ever now. One way we can do this is by eradicating discrimination and bigotry wherever it is found and creating a fairer life on campus for everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, Ella May, please. I'm going to start with a quote from Oscar Wilde. I may not agree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to make an ass of yourself. And I use Wilde's piss-takey version of the Voltaire original because the important thing about freedom of speech is that everyone is equally open to have the opportunity to win opinions as well as potentially making an ass of themselves. And this is something that has absolutely been forgotten in our universities.
There have been several attacks on freedom of speech from the institution of the university uh, recently, including the police being allowed to attack and arrest um, on universities in London and across England, which sparked the Defend the Right to Protest movement in 2010. Um, this was this was an outcry of students calling on universities to defend their right to protest, defend their right for freedom of speech. And also recently in 2013, the University of London announcing a total ban on protests um, on any campus premises was also an issue of freedom of speech, definitely. The interesting thing is that this has now been taken on, this censorious attitude from universities has now been taken on by students. It seems that the outcry at the injustice of this silencing of opinion has turned full circle and the battle to be able to speak is far more controlled amongst students themselves than enforcement from the Vice-Chancellor's office. These include, and are not limited to, no platforming, banning things that are deemed offensive, so sexist, racist, homophobic, for example, lads mags or the sun, enforcing rules and regulations for societies and events to adhere to, and banning certain words or certain forms of speech in what Tom has talked about in safe space policies. So why is this a problem? Well, firstly, I return as I always do, like a broken record, to the boring fact, but hard fact, that students' unions, the enforcer of these policies, is no longer a pure representative of student opinion. Its charitable status, which came about in 2011, means that any concept of a union, which is supposed to be a separate entity from its employer or from the university, the student union is meant to be separate from the university, is defunct because the board of external trustees, which sits for the university, essentially holds the power to veto any decision made by students. This means that there are undoubtedly limitations to how far the student's union can truly represent a student voice. Secondly, and unfortunately for any of us, all of us who tried to get politically involved during our student years, student engagement in politics is at an all-time low, with many SUs unable to meet caucus at AGM meetings. What this indicates to me is that any claim from a student union that they purely represent the student voice is potentially untrue. But why does this matter? University is first and foremost a place of learning, and this means exposing oneself to all aspects of argument. What policies like no platform and union bans promote is a censoring of the mind, a bubble wrapping of reality. Students should invite opposition to do exactly what Wilde describes, to make an ass out of it if necessary. My favourite example of this is which happens a lot in university camps, is the no-platforming of BMP or EDL or ra- anyone identified with a racist speaker. As if you could have a debate about racism without a racist on the panel. I mean, what that wouldn't be a debate, certainly. So to conclude, the key problem to all of this is a disbelief in the power of the young generation to make their own decisions. Having gone on about the influence of the union or the university... I'd like to finish by saying that the problem actually lies in spineless and disengaged behaviour of contemporary students in our universities today. Freedom of speech is the most crucial tool to any individual or collective movement. It allows the free flow of ideas to be honed and shaped to form opinions, collective and personal. Argument is the basis on which people make decisions. We should never accept being told. We should always think for ourselves. University today is an impressive schoolyard with faddish policies that patronise the intelligence of their populace to make their own decisions and shape their own political opinions. 
and I'll end on a quote from my favourite book, Jane Eyre. I am no bird and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will. I encourage... This is me, not Jane Eyre anymore. I encourage all students to form their own decisions and face what they disagree with using their own free speech to argue and win the battle. Calling from bans and censorship in the top-down manner of student unions does not solve problems. It just hides them from public view. Thank you. Uh, Michael, would you like to finish us off before we have a kind of quick discussion on the panel? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll give it a go. I, I think we've sort of missed quite a fundamental part of this discussion, which I'll try and bring us back to, so do bear with me. It's not part of what I'd written down. Um, but sort of to respond to really the ideas that we're talking about here, what we're discussing, what LMA said, is that everyone is equal, everyone's right to speak is basically equal. That was the idea I got from LMA's talk. The problem is that our society doesn't make that happen. Our society isn't structured that everyone's equal. Um, some of the groups we've discussed today, um, attacks against homophobic attacks, racist attacks, um, sexist attacks. Our universities are home to this as well. And so our schools and our society in general, um, and, uh, if you're uh, an LGBT young person growing up, it's more likely you'll be bullied in school than not bullied. That's the statistic. If you look into the University of Sussex where I'm a student, we haven't got one black professor. Um, I mean, these things are clear that there isn't a society that we live in where everyone is equal. Um, and what the idea of no platforms and safe-safe policies try to do is try and equalise that, because whether we like it or not, as uh, Tom said earlier, he talked about what was a homophobic and misogynistic society. That society still exists. Nothing's changed. Um, I also think it's important just to respond to Anne May's point about students' unions um, and the idea they're not representative. Um, they are. They're as representative, at least, I would say, based on turnout, but also based on how much people engage with the students' unions in which they are a part of than they do in kind of the wider political spectrum, especially parliamentary democracy, right? So turnout in students' unions elections at Sussex is higher than it is in a constituency in which uh, Sussex is in. So more people are voting and engaging in the work that they do, but also the level of control and the level of um, voice you have within those unions is much higher because you're a much smaller... Um, the, the pool of people who get to vote on things is much smaller, so your vote is worth much more. Um, and in terms of the trustee point in the LMA raised, it's also really important to remember that, again, at Sussex at least, um, the trustee board, which dictates what we can and can't do, is nine students and three external officers, and all nine students are elected. So these things aren't quite true, and there is a, a definite kind of line of clear democracy that exists there. But I think most importantly, once we've dealt with those little aside points, is the idea of, um, is, it, is it breaching people's freedom of speech to, um, to have no platform policies and to have safe spaces? And I think ultimately it's no. Um, I firstly want to just highlight the fact that we've ignored today that the law in general creates things we can and can't do and things we can and can't say, and everyone's completely ignored this fact. There's a law that dictates you can't incite racial hatred, and no one here, I don't think, is arguing we shouldn't have that piece of legislation in place. Well, no one has done yet anyway. If they do, then we can come to that afterwards. The fact is, that's there to protect people, to stop things happening, and to say that you know, that's a line where we will not cross, and I haven't heard anyone dictate that shouldn't be the case. And what safe space policies and no platform policies do is they extend that. And they say, well, the law doesn't go far enough in this instance. And as someone who studied law and works for a law firm, I can tell you that I don't believe the law goes far enough in many places. I believe the law's often wrong. I believe level of taxation is wrong. I believe that um, restrictions like enemies on the right to protest are wrong. And I believe that, that line should be much further along. But until it is, we allow communities like students' unions to self-govern and dictate what can and can't be said and what we can and can't do. So, yeah, the law changes as the perspectives on law, and in the future, hopefully, we'll come to a time where there either is legislation that protects people much better, or there's no need for it at all. But right now, there is, as I've said, homophobia, racism, sexism is still existing. And therefore, if student unions want to implement policies that might try and rebalance that shift, then that's something I should be, um, yeah, we're proud of. And we should never forget that university campuses are microcosms of society in general. Um, and that's really important. 
So we, I think we can accept the fact that law doesn't always go far enough, as I've said. It changes and, uh, and develops as we go along. And so why have safe space policies and why have no platform policies? As I've said before, the dominant societal structures uh, and narratives are designed to oppress certain groups. I've given you examples, Reading there are plenty more, and campus is no different. I can give the example of black students. So at Sussex, for instance, where I'm, where I'm an elected officer, and we have a massive attainment gap. So depending on what your GCSE and A-level grades are, if they're the same, if you're a black student and a white student, you're more likely to get a first as a white student than you are as a black student or a high 2-1, even though your grades coming into the place were the same. Um, looking around um, what's on the curriculum, the majority of the curriculum um, in most courses, especially arts courses, come from white men, um, the, the textual study in English, for instance, um, or certainly white women, um, whereas people from BME backgrounds are less likely to be there. Um, and the same I said before, there are no black professors at the University of Sussex. So here in universities, when political ideas are formed and people kind of consider how they'll take their life forward, we're having situations where there are definitely groups underrepresented and marginalised on campus. Um, so safe space policies, as far as I'm concerned, readdress that balance. I don't want to dwell on that further. I think that's important for debate for us to discuss how oppression works and you know, how that necessarily exists on campuses. But what I do want to suggest also to so people who don't identify into certain groups where they might consider themselves oppressed, what safe space policies do. And they give a legitimate and structured uh, grounds to challenge discrimination and debate those ideas. Um, it's not, as Tom said, banning things outright. I don't think any suggestion is that if you suddenly think you're offended by something or breach the safe space policy, you're kicked off campus and can never come back. But there's a kind of a regulation by which and a structure by which those things can be discussed and looked at. There's, um, I guess, some form of objective approach to discrimination, objective approach to oppression, which actually can be quite useful. Um, oppression is something that's subjective. I feel oppressed by you doing something. I feel that you are offending me and I feel unsafe by this action. And that's something that's very difficult to judge. But with a safe space policy, so a safe space policy is generally a list of norms and rules in which you can't breach if you want to be part of a campus or to be allowed to speak on campus or organisations you can't affiliate to openly or privately, I suppose, to be on a campus. We form some form of subjective insight into this. We create a list of rules and norms as a community and democratically we vote on allows how we work. Thank you. Um, so finally, why at universities? I think it's 30 seconds or so. So why do we need safe space policies at universities specifically? As I said before, student unions are very real, um, very direct forms of self-governance. Um, and higher education institutions are sandpits of inequality already. Um, but also, I think it's really important to remember that anywhere you go, people dictate how you live your life. If you go to a shopping centre, there are certain rules and regulations of what you can and can't do in there. So student unions aren't alone in dictating what you do. Um, if you go to, a, say, go to a local supermarket, you can't put up a tent and go to sleep. There's certain says, no, you can't do that. This is my property. I dictate how you live your life here. I think it's important to note that students have the right to self-govern and do that themselves. But ultimately, it's not about campuses, and that's the most important thing. It's a starting point. Um, I think safe space policies and no platform policies exist around the world. I think it'd be a lovely place where we don't need them whatsoever because oppression doesn't exist, but it does. So I don't think it's fair to say that no, um, no platform policies or safe space policies infantilise students. They empower students. They empower students to, to act and to organise in the way they want to do so. And that should definitely be extending out beyond our campuses. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, so I would kind of like to start by unpicking a little... Um, sort of where Michael left us at the end on the connection between you know, what goes on in student unions as a kind of internal space and what happens in the broader world externally. I mean, it does kind of seem, looking um, from the out in, that you know, student politics seems to ha itself have become kind of a bit more internal. The policing is about the um, reactions and you know comments of other students there is kind of an internal policing element to it um, but you know as kind of michael was saying is is that you know in any way new in student politics is the kind of uh, 
politics that is aggregating students into kind of some sort of you know political uh, intervention into how campuses are run. Are, they, are those groups you know really so internal, or is it just that the world outside of university has changed so much from those kind of broader uh, political struggles in the external world that students kind of used to, you know, that we can recognise and as kind of students trying to make an intervention into the world where it's kind of today it seems that students are more preoccupied with making interventions on campuses. And Tom, do you want to pick that up first? Um, yeah, I mean, there is this sort of internal regulation, but I just want to pick up something related to that, um, what Michael was saying about sort of like the structural inequality in society that exists and how that translates into... Because obviously to talk about addressing the structural inequality is to address outside issues. But then how that translates into safe space policies, so how ex-speaker speaker on campus affects like, um, power dynamics in Britain today, which result in the stuff Michael was talking about. I don't see how this outside world thing that exists of racism, homophobia, sexism, is combated by banning ex-speaker on campus, whether ex-speaker on campus is somehow facilitating the number of uh, black, or blocking the number of black professors at Sussex University and such. I don't see how that directly, this outside problem directly is affected by this internal regula regulation. Harriet, do you want to come back on any of that? Um, I would respond and say that no... Having, say, somebody from the BMP speak at your university does not directly mean that there are going to be fewer professors of colour. Um, but what I would say is that it, it creates a hostile environment. If you show somebody with racist views that they're welcome at your university, you know, the space becomes less welcoming for, for people who's, who are directly targeted by their views. That's, that's what I'd say. And I, I think that, you know you're so much more likely to go to university if you are from a middle-class background, you've gone to a good school, you're white. Like, all the advantages are already there for you. So we should do everything we can to help students of other backgrounds, particularly people of colour, women, people from working-class homes, you know, to feel safe and comfortable on campus. Elime, do you Sorry, I just wanted to... Um, the other points, but the point that Harriet just made... I think that there's something really wrong about suggesting that, uh, as has been stated many times by different people here, so uh, university students who are white and middle class create university as a make university safe for black or working class people or people who are oppressed, as some people have called it. Come, why? Why would that be necessary? For I don't. I think that's a very weird and patronising way to, to treat a working class or a black person entering into university. It should be equal for everybody, and that means the same risks are there for everybody and the, therefore the same opportunities. I don't think that um, the kind of risk of having, a, say, a BMP or a, or a transphobe or whatever kind of offensive speaker on campus would have. I think it's patronising the student populace to say that these people would speak and then everybody in the room would be brainwashed into thinking the way that... agreeing with them, even if they were a very good speaker. The whole point of having someone there is that you can... and speak and hearing their opinion is so that you can argue with them and you might end up agreeing with them, but you also might end up 
um, disagreeing with them and hope in a kind of like the society that we live in now that ideas that are widely accepted as racist or offensive would be publicly disagreed with. So uh, I don't think that students should shy away from the risk of inviting these kind of people onto campus and the idea of sheltering and making university a safe space uh, I find extremely boring and patronising. So the first thing about patronising students... Students decide what happens on their campuses. Safe says policies, as any student union policy would be, has to be voted on by the student body in general. So to say it's patronising for students themselves to organise and govern themselves is, I mean, it's a complete disjuncture. But specifically, I, I don't like this idea that it's patronising to people from backgrounds where, I say, they might be oppressed or structurally um, is inequality in our community is fair either. So an example, right, there was a debate happening at Sussex a few months ago. It was a no more to page three debate. There were two people speaking for it and two people speaking against it. Um, and me and all my friends went along to the debate and we sort of engaged in discussions, had a chat, we came home afterwards. And I got back to the house and one of my friends hadn't come and I asked her why. And she said, oh, well, one of the speakers was a UKIP counsellor and I don't feel that comfortable around a UKIP counsellor. And she's black and she sort of explained that because she was black, she didn't want to be there, she didn't feel comfortable being around them. Um, it's not about being patronising, it's not about um, trying to, to regulate how people live their lives outside of that space, but saying these space spaces need to be there for everyone to access. She didn't come to that debate because someone she didn't feel safe being around um, was going to be speaking at it, and therefore she removed herself and she, we didn't readdress that balance. She couldn't engage in that discussion, didn't feel comfortable doing so. And from a both subject and objective understanding, that, that seemed reasonable because that person, she felt, was there and was racist and didn't like, respect her for who she was. Michael, do you want to kind of um, pick up kind of something LMA said in her speech was about kind of the while it will come on one level you've claimed that um, student an active student politics is you know engaging students with the wider world now, LMA made the point it suggested that in some sense we were bubble wrapping you know the title of the session cotton wooling campusing our our students isn't there something kind of defeatist about that attitude well no I think if the world's crap, then why not make the world on campus a bit better? I mean, that's, that's the basic example. The world isn't a lovely, fluffy, friendly place. It's not a place where everyone's treated equally. It's not a place where you've got the same ability to succeed um, depending on which postcode you're born and the colour of your skin. So to say that we shouldn't try and change students' unions and universities to be slightly better, to, to re- kind of um, reject that inequality and try and rebalance things is, I think, inherently problematic. Well, I'll just add, say what Michael's just said, that if we are then going to make university a place where people feel safe rather than people being engaged which is the kind of traditional idea you attach to university that it's a place to kind of break out and explore your your ideas and and you know take risks and if we're if we're deciding that university is no longer going to be like that it's going to be a place where people feel welcome safe um protected then we can no longer claim that university is a place that any kind of revolutionary or radical or society-changing ideas can come from. Well, hang on, I, can would, I, huh. I would um, bring to that that I think that a place without bigotry or discrimination is actually pretty radical, and I would like to see that in the rest of the world. Also, I don't think that being, you know, a space being welcoming or safe is in opposition to like rigorous thought and learning and enjoyment happening. I, you know, I, I don't see those as opposing views at all. Tom, we're going to okay. continue our panel on the discussion, and then we'll go out to the audience and we can engage in a, a bit of debate there. Tom, I mean, a campus without bigotry or society or bigotry would be a radical thing and a good thing. But the question is whether how it's created. Is it created by 
the union bureaucracy deciding who can and cannot. I know you say a vote to them, but it's a small mandate. Like most unions have a fairly small mandate. Maybe Sussex is more engaged politically than the rest of the country, but for the vast majority of student unions around the country, they have a tiny mandate. Like, so whether or not, if you like, whether to create this university free or bigotry and sexism, if it's created by banning certain speakers, it's not challenging bigotry or sexism. It's just barring those who may hold those ideas from airing them freely. It's not the open clash of ideas and hopefully the winning of the argument. But, no, hang on, but even if it had a, even if there was a huge mandate at um, student unions, I mean, does, I mean, does that that doesn't fix the problem as you see it exactly, does it? No, no. But the point is that it's not like the idea that it would be it's radical for just certain speakers just to be told they can't attend campus to speak. Is it like rather a radical movement for ending bigotry, sexism, etc. Would be led by like sort of a higher, a bigger uh, majority of students than it's currently the case now. All right, Michael. But what you're saying isn't true either, because what you're suggesting is that students exist on campus and that's their entire life for at least three years, if not indefinitely, and they're in these kind of bubble-wrapped spaces that they never leave and therefore they're completely hidden from society. Well, firstly, students don't. Students usually go to campus for part of their life, but mostly live the life of students outside of a campus in a community. Um, and secondly, once they graduate, we'll leave campus in its entirety. So what we're doing is we're setting up spaces where people can feel safe and comfortable, but they still have to go out into the other spaces. John mentioned earlier the Sainsbury's event. Um, so yeah, this week, a thousand students turned up after, in, in a two-day period to a Sainsbury's store in Brighton because two students were been told to leave by a security guard after a customer had complained that them showing any public signs of affection, a light peck on the cheek and holding hands as two women, um, was uh, offensive, disgusting and was a, a risk to her children. Um, students could see that wasn't acceptable because they existed, at least in part, in a community on campus where they had an opportunity to exist in yeah, a safe space that was open to everyone and made a response. They didn't live in a cotton wool bubble and never leave it. They reacted to things happening outside as well. Same thing why students are really active now against anti-UKIP policy, why NUS policy is um, giving no platform and not engaging at all with any UKIP um, party kind of policy and won't listen to UKIP or work with UKIP is because they are engaged in those ideas. You can't say they're not because they use the safe space policies on campuses and no platform policies and push that out into a wider community, which makes the world slightly less fucked. Sorry. <laughs> Frank, speech, Ellery. Um Well, picking up on the, the, the big kissing at Sainsbury's, um, that, that was an instance in which uh, something happened that a certain number of people didn't agree with, and those people went and kind of stuck two fingers up to Sainsbury's and said, we'll kiss where we like. And that was, that was not a shutting down of the speech of the of the person who said the um, homophobic remark. So there's a difference there because actually that was that's an active engagement with the discussion. And I think that maybe something that as Joel began our discussion with talking about the difference between campus and the wider world, there is most certainly something that's influencing um, the way that students behave and act on campus is a kind of uh, a culture which which promotes a kind of victim mentality and a very a preciousness about uh, what you see as your identity, which then means that people come into students come into campuses expecting people to pander to that or expecting people to kind of uh, to to cotton wool the campus for that. And I think that not only should we have free speech on campus, but it should be kind of we should challenge students and young people, not just students of university. To actually kind of, if they, like, for example, the student who didn't feel comfortable around UKIP, I mean, like, 
surely I find that infinitely bizarre because unless he was going to leap across the table and deck her, then she would have been able to kind of argue her point if she wanted to or have other people argue her point um, and win the argument with him. There's shying away and hiding away from things and and kind of putting the argument of of bigotry, of transphobia, of homophobia, racism, whatever it is, outside the university gates, leaves it there. And when students leave university, it's still going to be there. So, I mean, what is the point? Harriet, do you want to come, kind of come on to that pandering, inhibiting students point? I don't... I, honestly, I don't think it's pandering. I think everybody should be proud of their identity and they should be able to enact it safely without having to, you know, to deal with it, it being a- attacked because you know, it's, it's different to somebody saying, I disagree with you. When you come up against, say, the UKIP party candidate, a racist party candidate, they are attacking the very essence of you. They hate what you are because you are a person of colour. You were born that way. You have no control over it. And... Like, you shouldn't have to... I just don't think you should have to deal with that. That's, not be, that's just not disagreeing over an issue. That's, that's hatred over, you know, the foundation of, of who you are and, like, your background, where you come from, how you've been raised, stuff you can't control. Um, I would also say that um, the no-platform policy for fascists is so important that, that we keep it going, not just because of the th- threat from the right and the rise of UKIP, but because fascism stands for the elimination of democracy and all freedoms. That's what it is. So by allowing them to speak, you're allowing ideas that, to gain traction that will eventually end up shutting down freedom of speech. Um, Tom, kind of picking up on what Harriet's just said, if you'd like to go, you know, engage with, um, you know, ideas in a, a broader sense of than kind of, you know, working out which side of the line people falls on. I mean, you can still go and do that. Why should you... What is it about universities that, you know, you think is kind of central to... That that, that kind of free engagement is is, sens- is kind of an essential feature of you know if you want to go and hear UKIP speak or engage with UKIP's ideas you know who cares about the NUS you still can go do that in the wider world isn't there a sense that we're kind of making a bit too much of a panic over what you've called a bureaucracy you know we can still just leave the bureaucracy where it is and go do our own thing can't we I mean you can go in to see UKIP speak later today here something like that but the idea that you go to university to engage with the outside world. It's a place where ideas are meant to be rigorously tested inside and outside of the classroom. And UKIP has one MP now. It has MEPs for a while. Um, it has like many councillors. It represents ideas that exist in British society. And so to say that they won't be on campus and just to um, expunge any saying of them on campus is to basically ignore the outside world. Like, rather, on university campuses, the ideas of UKIP should be challenged and debated. All right, um, Michael, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, I... The idea that you're shut... Again, I have a house, right, where I live, and in that house I can say what I watch on TV and I can decide what I want to talk about or read about or write about. That's my decision. 
I live in a, a house with lots of other people as well, and we can make those decisions as a group of people. I don't think anyone would argue that that's not acceptable for us to dictate we don't want certain things or certain people in there, whatever they are, because that's our space. To me, that's how we should govern all our communities, that people who live in there and work in there should decide what does and doesn't happen. Um, and I would say within a university, that's the same thing. I, I fail to see how you can suggest that it's not OK for people as a, in a democratic process to argue what they don't and don't want to happen. Lots of things happen around the world. Lots of vile, horrible things are going on as we speak, and I don't want them to be happening in my place, and I don't want to have to necessarily engage with them. I think they're unacceptable. I don't want to have to listen to someone telling me they're OK. And I don't, no one's articulated yet why that shouldn't be the same in a student's union. Aside from this idea that you see university education as engaging with the outside world, whereas some people who for the outside world the place is less open and less accepting and less easy to succeed in, maybe it's about readdressing that balance whilst they're there. Um, you, doing a bit of reading in advance of this session, you said in an article that there's something about student um, action today that's not self-interested, it's about, you know, articulating a vision for things outside of society and you kind of said a bit of that today I mean isn't that description you've described of kind of the student the student world entirely self-interested not at all because you create a microcosm you create a space that then exists afterwards as I said before the Sainsbury example or the uh, other work that students have done in kind of work with lecturers who are on strike for instance quite recently a lot of stuff students are doing now is based around working with other groups who have been struggling through four years of um, the Tory government and the idea is is that you create a space there where you can reimagine how things can exist and reimagine how things be and take them with you to the outside world it's not the idea that it's inward looking to tackle racism is, is bizarre it's trying to tackle racism on a campus the idea you're trying to tackle sexism is inward looking is bizarre it's tackling sexism on campus but then those ideas exist new people come into those spaces the thousands of new undergraduates every year are exposed to a new idea of working and thousands of undergraduates every year who are leaving those spaces to go and join um, I guess the real world have those ideas as well it's not inward looking at all it's, it's creating a new way of existing a new way of being where you can where there is true democracy and then trying to push that outward as you carry on um, well, I would just then, I mean, given what Harriet and Michael um, has said, um, suggest that universities are then can no longer when they when we go on when universities go on marches um, against uh, fees or they go on, which uh, happened a lot in 2010 and since then, or when uh, students stand up and say that they are. Um, radically opposed or revolutionary opposed to um, in things that the government um, say. Any kind of radical or revolutionary element the students then claim for themselves is, does not match up with this, um, with this kind of enclosure of the university space as a, as a kind of microcosmic safe haven from the rest of the world. It, it can't match up. The two can't exist. Either you are either you sh are shut off from the world and are safe, or you engage with the world and take on the crap that comes with that, and take on every everything that comes with that, and deal with it. You, the the two can't exist at the same time in my head. Right, I'm going to give Harriet the final word on our panel, and then we're going to come out to our audience for questions. Um, I, th I think it's looking at it in a bit of too much of a black and white term to say. You know, it's either you're closed or you're open to everything. I, I don't think that it's it's a case of shutting ideas out. Like, offen if you want to use the word offensive, offensive ideas are always going to be there. They're always going to get in. It's just it's just having a place where you can say, we don't really want that here. We're going to challenge that, and we're going to say no to it. 
which, as Michael said before, and I really liked his comment, that, that students can take out with them when they enter the world of work and they, you know, they, they enter a wider space where um, structural inequalities are very much present. Okay, so we're going to come out to the audience now. Um, one thing we haven't touched on up here at all, um, I, I recognise, is kind of how the discussion we've been having impacts the academic experience of university, but I'm sure that will come out in the wash with our audience questions. So can I see a show of hands, people who have questions for our panellists? And uh, do we have mics in here? Is that... Yep. Um, so could I get... Um, is it just one? Yeah. So can we start uh, up the top there um, with... Uh, the gent in the grey shirt. Just back front row, yeah. Um, well, there's so much to respond to, but I thought I'd say something to Harriet she quoted me at length in her introduction. Um, oh, hi, Tom. <laughs> hiya, how are you doing? Uh, so, um, in response to, the, um, to this idea that I was positing lad culture as something that's working class and therefore it's a classist response, I recognise it as an affectation, but the point is it's that it's a brusque, it's a somewhat you know, abrasive form of... Um, expression which they, which is an affectation but it just offends a certain rarefied set such as yourself that was more the point i was making but really What's, when what, you say things we're going to take a few questions and you can come back on it. very quickly but what what I wanted to say was when you say that you're protecting <coughs> young women on campus they're not calling for this did, because they recognize hang on hang on we're going to take the questions <laughs> and then we'll come back because um what, what I want to know is, as we've, we've heard so much about democratic mandate, whenever any of these bans against anything attacking lad culture, rape culture, etc., there's no popular support for it. And when it goes to referendums, they, you, they're constantly defeated. So I just want to know, who are these women who want that protection? Because I just don't see them. Right, and at the front here, and can we move that mic um, to the guy in the shirt over there? Yeah. Um, hello, I just wanted to come back on this idea that um, the university campus is a part of the private sphere in the same way as your own house is, and that in your own house, you know, you get together with your housemates and decide what to watch on the television and um, who's allowed in your house to speak. I thought that was a very, very revealing uh, comparison that you made there. Um, I think there are some very, very big differences between your house and between the university. Uh, certainly at the University of Kent, where I work, uh, students had to be bribed to vote in the last round of union elections. They were given raffle tickets, which, they were, then, which were then entered into a draw, and they could win a special prize if they voted, or be in with a chance of winning a special prize if they voted. Uh, some of my children are here today, so they might contradict me if I'm wrong, but in my house, I certainly don't have to bribe them to choose what to watch on the television. So I think that's one major difference. Second even difference, which is far more fundamental and far, far more important, is that unlike a private house, a university actually has a moral mission. It has an intellectual goal, which is the pursuit of knowledge and you know, again, my house, we don't have such a mission or a goal. It's the private sphere. It's a retreat away from such public goals. But the, the fact of the university having a, a public mission, which is the pursuit of knowledge, means that all attempts to um, protect people, be they from UKIP or be they from anything that this um, bribed elite um, representing students at the university decides to ban curtails free debate and in, in the process of curtailing free debate it restricts the pursuit of knowledge so it's one part of the university actually going against the fundamental mission of the university which is the pursuit of knowledge. If you can't 
have opportunity to counteract ideas that you consider to be racist or homophobic when you're at university. You are not exercising knowledge. You're not um, practicing having arguments yep. with people. Okay, thank you. Uh, and at the front, can I see a show of hands, people have questions. So can we move uh, the mic of the person that's just spoken uh, up to the person with the green jacket there? Yeah, up here. Okay, um, Harry and Michael, you say you both believe in free speech, but you stand up for no platform policies and safe spaces. Surely if you actually believed in the principles of free speech, you, you'd think that bringing somebody from, whether it's the BNP, EDL, or even UKIP, that you would be the best way to challenge their ideas is to challenge them publicly and to you could destroy them. You can imagine getting a BNP guy along. It's not, it's not very difficult to, uh, to pick their thing apart. So will that be upsetting to people? Perhaps, but uh, you talk about you want to create this equality and all the and all the rest. Do you think of the civil rights movement for black people, the United States, or uh, struggles for gay rights or women's liberation or this kind of thing? It's an upsetting experience doing this uh, doing this kind of uh, this kind of thing. And while and while you say that you stand for equality, what you actually do with this kind of identity politics, putting everybody in the little boxes, is extremely divisive. Saying over here, okay, you're, you you guys are Asians, you guys are blacks, you guys are gays. We're women. We're all we're all entirely separate. Is um, is one of the most yeah. divisive things in society today. Okay, thank you. Uh, and while we're taking a question here, can we move uh, the final question of our first round uh, to the gent in the shirt down here? Yep, up there. Hello. Um, I agree that university is about the pursuit of knowledge. I'm a university student at the moment. Um, but I'd also say that because we are in a safer environment, it means that people can talk... Um, people, minorities can talk about themselves and because of that I have learned about those minorities and then I know that I will then take that out into the real world and be a better rounded person myself and I am aware of the outer sphere as well and these extremists but because of those minorities I feel like I can take that into the real world and have be a good representative of, of my university and I also feel that um, I would feel saddened if my um, I want it is about what university you come from and what how your university represents the rest of the world um, and I feel like I want to I want to be part of a university that represents people and that is linked. Yep. Uh, the final question on here and then our speakers can come back. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> two quick comments. One is I, I kind of smile when I hear the word safe space because to another person it would just sound like censorship zone. And it reminds me of the U.S. missile that used to be called the peacekeeper, which Americans thought was a way of establishing peace and most people saw as a way of killing lots of people. Um, so I just smile when I hear that. And I, and I also find it odd, Michael, that you don't see how the same argument that you apply to safe space is what that woman in Sainsbury's with her daughter sees as her version of a safe space. And what she seeks to do is ban people from showing affection. I, I, I can't imagine why you can't see that. Harriet, I, I, I think your argument is very deeply flawed because you seem to be talking about free speech and we have to confront this. And, and I think it's obviously we're not, we're not talking about the harassment, which I think you rightly said is appalling and all those other things that happen and incitement, et cetera. But when you talk about free speech and you say we have to challenge these ideas, you say, and the way we're going to do that is to ban them, and we're not going to even give them a platform. You spoke about fascism, and you say fascism is a thing that is going to, you know, if it comes about, it's going to ban free speech. And the way you want to do that is by banning free speech. I just don't get your point at all. Okay. Uh, so um, 
Harriet, do you want to come back first? Um, I can't remember what question I was answering for Tom up there, because um, I don't have a list of names of all the women who would like to feel safe on campus for you, unfortunately. Um, but you know, the, the statistics that I read out in the opening bit, they show that there is a huge problem with sexism and misogyny on campus, and it has to be challenged. And all those people who've been victims of verbal and non-verbal assaults, including the one in seven who were victims of serious sexual assault, I think they want to feel safe. Um, yeah, Harriet, um, there's also kind of the questions about um, the kind of elements of democracy on campus, the kind of bribing votes, but also the kind of representative question. Do you want to kind of get um, into that In terms of something like banning the sun or banning blurred lines from campus um, being played on campus... I think that that has to come to a democratic vote if it's going to happen at all. I don't support the bans unless they are voted in democratically. That, that would be what I have to say on that. All right, cool. Um, Michael? Yeah, just to respond to this point about my home, I think it's important. I mean, I'm assuming by working you're a lecturer or academic, and, it's, and that's, that's wonderful, and that's why you're there. That's not why I'm there. I'm a student, and then I get elected on a political platform to make decisions. The university exists maybe in the pursuit of knowledge, that's what you're there for. The Students' Union doesn't. It's a very different body. It's a very different thing. The Students' Union can never dictate what you or you don't research. That's not my... I have no authority to. The Students' Union dictates what students do whilst they're on campus and also what people are invited to speak as part of the Students' Union. So that's wonderful for you to pursue your knowledge and I really appreciate it and that's your role, but that's not my role. And the way I use the home is because I think that we should all be governing everything we do within communities. I think you should dictate what happens in your house through people deciding what they want to happen in that house. I think same in your community locally, that's why you vote for people, and same on a campus, I see no difference. So I don't think it's fair to just suggest that because you want to pursue knowledge, you're infringed upon that. I'm saying for students and how they want to live their life and the things they want to engage with, um, then that's how they can do it, through instant voting through a democratic no-platform policy. Now, the other thing to add, obviously, is if at Kent they're paying people to vote, that's problematic and that's not ideal, but... You know that's something that's a that's a flaw with a with a system that should be working and does work in other places. Um, I, mean, I think the kind of issue raised there is the sort of our universities a public or a private activity when you arrive in them. I mean, the student movement was very active when I was at university. It was all about kind of defending the university as a public good. And I kind of um, LMA and um, Tom, would you guys kind of like to? try and kind of dig a bit deeper into, you know, why has that line moved so much? I mean, are there kind of justifiable reasons for it? Tom, first. Uh, the sort of upsurge in student activism around 2010 and then its quick death in 2011 and then the sort of often after an upsurge in mass participation in politics and then it's... Um, falling out of fashion amongst its, the wider participants. The core left often becomes more inward-looking. It seems to be a general pattern. Perhaps it's repeating itself on university campuses. Well, um, in response to that, I'd like to pick up on what um, Ross has said at the back is, is central to this whole, and we've ignored it to this whole argument, that by um, making a difference between, uh, say, a white middle-class student and a black working-class student is divisive, obviously, but also what it means is that there's then a situation whereby if that... um, Because people are not equal and and treated the same, that then perhaps somebody, somebody, like a black working-class student, 
might not feel like they had the support of their other students as equals to, st to stand up and argue with a, with a racist who'd been invited for a debate. So actually, by kind of sectioning off and kind of and um, making university this very kind of private, not only are you saying like we're not all adults because adults go to university. Once you're in university, you are not a child anymore or a teenager. You're an adult. But by then dividing it from society once by saying no, we're not adults. We're kind of like cosseted beings on campus. And then secondly, being like, oh, but you're now a, a black, trans, whatever, and you're a white, you know, all the different kind of tick boxes for your identity. That means that there's no kind of equal consensus and support. So that when a black student stands up and says, um, actually, I disagree with you, they don't feel like they have the student populace behind them. This is how you change opinions. You have the, the support of your peers. You have the the support of society. This is what is supposed to happen. But this can there can never be that kind of equal support when we are treating people like they should be kind of kept in a little safe box. It's so this what Ross was saying. This kind of like divisive identity politics is is at the root of why students uh, feel like they have to be precious about who they are or um, protected. I mean, um, Ross also brought up the. Um, civil rights movement, whatever happened, for, whatever happened to kind of like in history, standing up and saying, I'm proud of who I am and I'm going to fight you for it, rather than saying, oh, I'm, you know, I am who I am and I can't help it, as Harriet picked up on. I, I was born this way, so can you please leave because you're making me feel a little unsafe. I mean, one is revolutionary and one is pathetic. We're going to take more Sorry. questions now. Um, I'm going to take... Uh, here at the front, um, uh, and then uh, secondly, the blue shirt. Um, Harry, it sort of like <coughs> sidestepped a point that was mentioned over there, which was to do Sorry. with your um, fascism point. And it was something that we were all saying here where you said um, you don't want fascism to sort of gain momentum because if it does, it's going to lead to um, censorship, basically. But what you're doing is you're arguing for censorship to stop fascism from gaining momentum. So what you want to do is like stop people from speaking first. It's the same outcome. So I don't understand your argument there. Okay, uh, and next to you, put your hand down when the when it actually came out to it. But I can see we've wanted to ask a question. Um, just the guy on this side. You mentioned about your friend who who didn't go to the UKIP debate. I feel like you basically just supported her point by saying she had a choice to go to the UKIP debate or not. In university, you want there to be a choice. You don't want there. To, you don't want anyone to shut down debate. You know, you want a market of ideas where good ideas do displace bad ideas. Thank you. Uh, and then there was the two gents here. Hello. Hi. Uh, yeah, I've just got a couple of short questions. And firstly, I think uh, universities intellectually can only be one of two things. It can either be a place where students face the world and all of the things that are in it, including the fact that some people always have ideas which are morally repugnant to you, or it can be a place where people are taught to think in a specific way about, you know, following a certain political or social model, I think uh, it's always better to try and keep an open dialogue about anything. But um, two points, two questions. I think uh, the first one is, isn't it a bit intellectually dishonest to conflate the idea of someone being free from offense, being uh, protected from being offended or being upset by the fact that someone doesn't like them or whatever the case may be, 
and uh, you're conflating that with someone's actual physical safety because no one's actually saying you're going to bring down, you know, a speaker who's going to start attacking the audience or anything like that. Secondly, in reality, isn't there a kind of a kind of an imbalance in how these things are presented on campus? I think there seems to be this idea that things are uh, this kind of like or mostly are this kind of like a lukewarm system where no extreme ideas on either side are presented and everyone kind of just gets on and has a nice neutral middle ground. Uh, but I went to Queen Mary University in East London, for example, and uh, among other things, I remember being given a flyer to celebrate Trotsky's birthday, Trotsky being, of course, a radical, lunatic, murdering maniac, and... Uh, <laughs> And you would never see someone talking about celebrating Hitler's birthday. The two are pretty much on an equal footing. Uh, but, of course, because one is more politically in vogue, because the far left is more acceptable than the far right, we'll overlook that and we'll pretend that this doesn't violate this idea of, you know, safety on campus. You know, maybe some people are likely to be killed by Marxists. Who knows? Uh, yeah, just given that students are likely to come across all these homophobic and racist views outside of university... Surely the best way to do it is to give them a safe environment in which to debate them in university, so allow the platform and allow a safe place to challenge these ideas. And can uh, the other mic go up to the gent in the corner? Sorry, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of Trotsky personally, but um, my question is to uh, Harriet and Michael, which is I think there's a risk that um, there is a certain double-edgedness, a double-edged sword aspect to what you're talking about. So the example I'd give is I'm at Sheffield University, and the, there was a ban on The Sun and a ban on Lads Mag Sporting. But then there was also an attempt to ban gay magazines like Attitude as well. Um, I'm not sure if it was successful in the end, but it does kind of show that the, the kind of minorities that you're saying you want to protect can also be victims of this kind of thing. So how, how would you respond? OK, uh, and the final question, and we'll come back Hi. to our panel. I have spent the last week getting outraged that um, BBC and Sky are inviting UKIP on. Now I'm finding myself in exactly the opposite position, going, oh, my God, how can you not invite UKIP to a debate? So being a little <laughs> schizophrenic. But um, I just this is a thought. I don't know what any of you think about it. But I wonder if the commodification of education, and higher education in particular, is exactly what's driving this. Because if I go to the shop and the shopkeeper starts sort of questioning my appearance and my lifestyle choices and you know muttering about oh if i was in power we wouldn't have any of you around here obviously i'm going to feel upset offended i'm going to be outraged with that shopkeeper that's not why that's not the deal that i've got into and education has like become that that we we buy our education and it's very expensive it's a premium product so obviously i don't want to go through my education being offended and like being disagreed with and once we've started to buy into this idea that education is like a private product that we pay loads of money for, then I can totally understand the motivation for wanting to shut out people that I don't, dis don't agree with. Because it stops being that moral idea of uh, the quest for knowledge. And it starts just being something that I pay money for to push me up the social ladder. So I don't like that, but I wonder if that's what's driving it. And then... Um, I just wanted to push this idea of democratic bans a little bit, because I think it's a really interesting one. Can any community democratically decide to buy, ban anything it liked? What if in Sainsbury's they'd taken a quick poll of customers and found that actually the majority didn't like lesbians kissing in the store? Would you have then supported that as a ban? What if um, a primary school polled its teachers and they decided that they didn't want any teachers who didn't speak English as a first language? Or like... Like how far would you take that idea that a community can democratically decide to ban something? Because it seems quite radical. 
and not necessarily in a good way. Yep, Michael. So I think parliamentary democracy, by its definition, is what you just described. It's a large community making decisions through a representative model, admittedly, but making decisions about what does and doesn't happen in society. People seem to have totally ignored today the fact there are certain things that dictate what you can and can't do, what you can and can't say in our community, but not through what students' unions say, what through the law says. You can't incite racial hatred. Um, you can't go and shoot people, and that's, that's, that's a blocking on what you can and can't do. So, yes, you could say it's quite radical to d- suggest that communities should be self-governing, but we do it already. It's how far you think you could take that down. Now, you may well get a Sainsbury's store that's full of bigots who'd vote at one point, and that would create a situation where they'd ban lesbians from kissing. But I don't think that's generally what our society would look like if people had the right to dictate and to argue and then to vote upon what should happen in their communities. I, I just don't think that's a valid point. It may be a small example if in one place something went wrong, but in general terms, I don't think people would be voting for, for racist or bigoted issues. If they Hang on, I'm... If they, I, it's, it's an immaterial thing. It didn't happen. I mean, you want me to ask in a hypothetical situation what I would do? Probably not. Of course not. I wouldn't support people to hold racist views or, or homophobic views or any other view. All right. Um, do you want to kind of come on to some of the other points that raise the com- conflation of offence and physical safety, um, the unevenness of the kind of who gets? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. It's something that I think we're all grappling with regularly we have these discussions is where does the line get drawn between your physical safety and then your I guess your mental health or your, your well-being internally um, I think we've come a long way since the days where people say if you're physically unsafe then that's unsafe and if your mental health is you know if you feel unsafe in, your, in yourself not physically but from your, yeah, your mental health other issues then then you're suddenly uh, not worth listening to like we value mental health as much as physical health these days um, and if I don't feel safe in an environment, and I'm not scared I'm going to get hit because I don't feel like comfortable being there, I'm not welcome in that space, that person represents a threat to my mental well-being, I think that's also problematic. Um, it's interesting to like, suggest that I, as a, as a white man, can dictate how uh, a black person would feel. I can't. But that's not the point I'm making. I, I, don't, I suppose what I'm trying to argue is that it's a, you cannot feel safe in an environment without being scared for you're going to get punched. That, that's not what the idea is here. I don't think anyone's claimed it isn't. Are you, is that what's being suggested? Anyway. No, I think that um, there obviously there is um, a difference between there is a difference between um, physical and what's physical and what's speech. I think that's part of what my point is. In that, um, in an extreme example, if I was to um, as a if I was a union officer or a member of a university anymore, and was to invite someone who I know was likely to to attack physically attack someone at the end of it and that was that was something that I knew was going to happen and that would be a completely different matter because there is no intelligence there is no debate in in a punch-up um, the point of uh, allowing ideas and speech as dangerous and as kind of like potentially hurtful or whatever as they are is the fact that it's part of uh, it should be part of an intelligent debate in which you can actually what you want to do is not only disagree with the person, but also change their idea. What are we going to do um, with, you know, racist ideas? Are we just going to bury them all under the ground? Or are we actually going to engage with them and try to change opinions? Are we going to section off society into people we agree with, people we disagree with, or are we actually going to have the debate? I think that's the problem that's going on at universities now, is that it's not that we want to have the debate in a certain way, it's that the debate is just not happening. It's, it's being ignored. And so um, to actually kind of make a distinction between um, physical and speech is very important. And I think that even if someone said um, something extremely hateful, 
wrong. We all we can all think of examples of something like that, of something that is like a consensus in society that that's a bad opinion. The the most effective and the most intelligent, and I think the way that it should be dealt with, is to actually deal with it, not to ignore it. And ideas like no platforming, bans, censorship, ignore the problem. They say, I'm not dealing with you, rather than actually trying to change that opinion. And, and where are you at the end of that? You're at the same position as you were before. There is no change there. Yep. Um, Tom, I just wanted to pick up on uh, what Michael said about... You know, we move beyond the idea of there being physical threats to safety and then also threats to people's well-being, also as a threat to their safety. And this obviously just relies on a, a subjective conception. It relies on the person themselves feeling by themselves they are unsafe. And so how far do you take this? Like, so the gentleman right here feels unsafe with um, leaflets about Trotsky being handed out. He's wrong on Trotsky, but he feels unsafe. So how far do you take that if you rely purely on subjective measures of how safe people feel from speakers? Do you just openly accept anyone who claims this makes me feel unsafe? Or where do you draw the line? Um, Tom, do you also want to kind of come to the, this idea of kind of the sort of purchasing power? Isn't it there it's something in the recognition that universities are not the kind of moral ideal you kind of seem to be ascribing? That, you know, there is a different relationship universities have with their students now than in the past, and that comes with certain kind of prescriptions. Well, yeah, I, was, uh, I watched uh, one similar debate on this subject a while ago, and uh, one of the speakers arguing for, say, spaces and censorship on campus basically said the majority of students now just travel into uni and go home. They're not, they don't view themselves as part of this community, so while they come in and out of uni, we should make them feel safe and come in and out. So it does away with the whole idea of university as a community with a goal of such or knowledge or such and such. Doesn't that also imply a kind of irrelevance about to, to kind of what happens outside the classroom on campuses? Perhaps, I mean, but it's not a reason to give up the idea that university should be this ideal. Right. Um, Harriet, do you want to kind of finish yeah, okay. us off before we come out to the audience uh, for the final time? I was going to respond to the lady over there whose, whose point was really, really good. Obviously, um, Fascism and extremism is there, like it exists, to shut down the speech of people who do not fit in with that ideal. But by banning them from campus, we also censor that. That, that is a thing. That was a really great point. But the two outcomes are different. Like, extremist ideas gaining traction on campus like, has a, a very negative and pernicious and discriminatory outcome, whereas not letting them speak, saying, we're, we're not going to validate you as a speaker. You're not welcome on our, on our campus. We don't recognise your ideas as anything we want to be part of in our society, on our university campus. You know, that's, that's only going to be good for students. OK. Um, do you also want to kind of come to this, the, the point of unevenness um, that was raised by the guy in the leather jacket? There is a kind of unevenness to what we decide we're uncomfortable about. Yeah, and obviously if you push that to its logical conclusion, you could say, I'm offended by those chairs, I really don't like the colour. Or, you know... Hang on. I'm I've, sorry, I've lost it. All right. Um, so we're going to come out to the audience for a final round of questions, and then I'm going to ask our speakers to kind of give their sort of closing statements. Um, so I'm going to take the uh, person with the mic. Can we start with one for the gentleman at the back, uh, and the other mic, one for the girl at the front. Yep. I just want to give a, a very brief example of where this 
can, can lead and where it, where it is leading. At my university, a politics lecturer proposed to organise a debate on the Arab-Israeli conflict, which obviously was, at the time he proposed, this was very, very much in the news. He felt obliged to contact the, the lecturers' union, who told him that uh, he'd have to be careful about which uh, Israeli speakers he got because of their, their viewpoints on uh, no platform for a uh, sort of boycott of, uh, of, of uh, Israeli speakers. Uh, he spoke to the university authorities who told him that he would need to ensure he invited speakers who would make people feel welcome and safe, the, the same kind of language that's been used here. Uh, and he also spoke to the students' union who echoed that and said they were very concerned about uh, particular speakers might be offensive to Muslim students, other speakers on the other side might be offensive to Jewish students. The debate hasn't happened. Yep, thank you. Uh, at the front. Um, I hate these things. Um, I think my question is more about, I think you're both kind of trying to find like a stage of tolerance, I think, and your tolerance is censoring ideas. Other people's tolerance is free speech. So I think my question is, does free speech come from tolerance? Does tolerance come from free speech? And with the whole pushing the debates underground, have we not had the debate several times over and over again? And do we not always come to the same conclusion that racism is wrong, discrimination is wrong? Is that not reflected in our laws already? Why do we need to continue having the debate? Yep. Um, yeah, no, the kind of legal question that was raised at the start is the kind of thing worth um, reinvestigating. Uh, can I get the mic at the back to go to the, the lady at the back? And finally, um, can we get that second mic to the gent in the black T-shirt? Um, so, in response to the debating, and um, we shouldn't have to um, persuade people to want equality, and we shouldn't have to um, debate about it. It shouldn't be accepted. If we allow this kind of thing to be thrown around, then we're kind of condoning it. We shouldn't um, we shouldn't have to persuade people to to get rid of sexism. We shouldn't have to persuade people to not be racist. And by debating it, then it becomes more acceptable. So shouldn't surely the safe haven is a good thing um, because it doesn't condone it. Just over here, yeah. The theme of this session and the others that follow is therapy culture. And I think it's just worthwhile reflecting on what that means. If we live in a therapeutic state, it means you see the majority of people as psychologically vulnerable. And that's a complete shift in the way you look at people. It's complete difference, and that's the way that's gone through the whole of this debate, is looking at people as slightly pathetic. And you, know, you may not, you know, don't go twitching about it. The point is, you look at students and any individuals, and rather patronisingly, people from ethnic minorities are somehow especially vulnerable. And what the therapy culture does, it divides the world, not into counsellors and people who need counselling, but to vulnerable people and those elites who want to protect them, right? I think that's the new situation you have, where you have some self-appointed people saying that we have to protect these vulnerable people. There was a time when the working classes were black people, everybody fought really hard. They didn't need patronising often you know, white people telling them what was best for them and what safe spaces they need. But I do think you underplay the importance of safe spaces. It really is an important change, and it is a dramatic one. And it does impact upon the university. Because 
by calling for safe spaces all the time and getting people to see themselves as vulnerable, because that's what you do. You get people to take on the mantle of vulnerability. And that, that disempowers them. It doesn't empower them. And the idea of having safe spaces affects every aspect of the university. People learn, just as the speaker at the back said, not to have debates, not to discuss. Academics do not discuss and debate. And I think in that situation, you're creating something new. It's a cause and effect from safe space and no platform policies on the university. A particular instance, you can't disassociate yourself from the university. You're the University of Sussex Student Union. Forget your constitution. You'll get reported as being the voice of the, uni uh, voice of the university. That's what happens. happens at my university as well. Right? But what you're creating is what I would call the silent university, a completely silent university where people are frightened to speak. Whatever. They're not frightened to speak. They're frightened to speak because they don't want to hurt anyone. They don't want to cause psychological harm. And that is disempowering for everybody in the university, and particularly disempowering for minorities. Okay. Uh, and uh, in the blue, our final question, uh, and then we're going to come back to our audience. Uh, thank uh, to you. To our um, panel, so Just um, on that, I remember, you know, 1900s, late, uh, uh, late 1800s, uh, for, for women, there was a lot of talk about separate spheres, and that women came from a separate sphere, and they had to be protected particularly in a public sphere, because they couldn't do that. Um, and that's what women fought against, fought against being seen as separate um, and not allowed into the public sphere. And it worries me when I hear talk about treating people as if they should be in a separate sphere now, and that's called respect, and that's called helping them from their vulnerability or learning about a minority that you're not part of, that we're all living in these separate spheres, and I think that's a real backward step. But I wanted to pick up on this Sainsbury's story because I thought it was quite interesting um, that... Uh, they went in and had a good old snog just to so say to Sainsbury's people that, you know, it, it, they can do what they want. And in a sense, I'm with LMA on it. You know, you know go for it. Uh, two fingers up and all that. But I, I think afterwards they've, uh, they've suggested that all Sainsbury's staff get a workshop, get a session on um, uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual and transgender um, rights and all the rest of it. And I think that really does point to the authoritarianism of all of this that really, I think, is sh shocking and worrying. Because like, good, like all good authoritarians, you then bow to uh, some kind of state regulation or some kind of quango because they're, they're so, they know best. You also are saying, and this is an example of it, is saying that not just is somebody, as this fellow said in, in, in the front, which I thought was really important, that somebody said, my safe space in Sainsbury's is not seeing you kissing. You're not just saying it's their fault, you're saying that it's everybody's fault, that every staff member at Sainsbury's needs to go to a workshop because obviously you don't really trust us. You don't trust that we're not going to be bigoted and you think that we need educating. Yep. And I think that's really worrying. And the third last point, and no, I promise... I'm, I'm going to have to stop you It's really paternalistic. That's what I was going to say. All right, cool. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I'm now going to ask our panel to kind of uh, wrap up where they kind of think their position is uh, on the debate. I'm going to go um, in kind of the opposite order to we started with. So, Michael, do you want to kind of come oh back to us first? Um, all right, I'll give it a go. I think... So in terms, I think this legal question hasn't been grappled with, and I think it's ignored once again. I've asked repeatedly, do people think that laws against inciting racial hatred are problematic and should be removed? And no one's actually addressed that. Um, 
If you do, then fine, but then you should have said it. The point I'm making is that there are certain laws that exist, and whether we like it or not, they're there. And I don't think the law is right the whole time. I'm a, a lawyer, that's what I think. I think the law needs to be changed, and we challenge the law, and we change the law. The view on same-sex marriage 20 years ago in Parliament was very different to what it is today. Those things develop, and I think that the, the legal system as is doesn't go far enough in protecting everyone. And I don't think it's fair to call me, or suggest I'm calling people, was inherently was it inherently pathetic? Is that what the phrase was used? Like, I feel like in certain situations, because of either my sexuality or because of my religion, that I'm going to be in a position where I don't feel safe or comfortable being there. That's not pathetic, that's the case. In the long term, I would love it to be the case that we don't need any of these things, because the world is free of bigoted and racist people, and sexist and homophobic people, but it's not. As I've said before, growing up as a school pupil, you are more likely to get bullied than not bullied if you're LGBT. Uh, one in three young school pupils who are LGBT have uh, contemplated or attempted suicide. 98% have heard the word gay used as a derogatory term. Like, the world isn't all fluffy. That's the problem, and we should be fighting to make it so. So please don't call me pathetic for feeling the fact that I'm likely to get offended or upset or hurt or not feel safe around these things. Uh, and finally, the day, these are self-appointed people talking on behalf of other people. So, firstly and foremostly, I'm not self-appointed. I'm elected. There's a democratic process. Now, maybe at Kent it's not very good, but at Sussex it certainly is. More people vote in those elections than do in general elections. And I stood on a platform with a real mandate. Um, so, I, yeah, I think I have got right and authority to say things. But also, right, I don't um, speak on behalf of others. Sorry, the last thing to say is, in, within the NUS, for instance, we've discussed a lot today, there are self-defining autonomous liberation campaigns for LGBTQ people, for black people, for disabled people, for women, and they make their own policies as well, which dictate what they do. And all of those things, funnily enough, come up the same as we have them at Sussex Students Union, because I think we're on the right side. Thank you. Uh, nice. um, I think that the, somebody um, at the back said that, why do, we have to, why do we have to keep having this debate? We've had it so many times. We all agree racism is bad. Why do we have to keep uh, kind of doing this in our university? Why can't we all just accept that um, we agree? Well done. Um, well, there's a, there's a difference between that idea and also the idea that, um, that Harriet uh, picked up on and said that um, racism and the BNP is like the new, the new huge threat in society and, um, we have, and that fascism is on the rise. So is this a crackpot idea that we should ignore or is it a political idea that should be talked about? Well, I think that um, all um, ideas like that are political ideas, so things to do with... Um, gender inequality or homophobia, racism, whatever it is, if you're going to treat it like a political argument, um, then you must give it the free um, platform and you must take it head on and whatever the outcome is, that must be... If, if you've got a good chair and a fair debate, then we hope as an intelligent you know, society, which I think we are, that the outcome that will come will be towards a fair and equal society. I think the assumption that having um, some kind of like very charismatic uh, BMP or transphobe speaker come on will suddenly win over a crowd of people who are actually free-thinking and intelligent individuals in society. I think that we need to stop pa absolutely patronising um, yep. students and young people and um, let them make their own decisions, whether that be... Um, from, not from student union top-down bans or anything like that, but making collective, individual and then collective decisions on how to act on the ground with free speech to people. And if you want to know anything more about that, I'm a writer of Spiked, and Spiked has a stall um, upstairs in the main area where we've got lots of stuff. We've got a free yep. speech manifesto and a say no to no platform. Yep. Come talk to us. Cheeky plug. Thank you. Harriet? Um, like, thank you all for listening. I think free speech and free academic discourse are important, but we should never leave ourselves in a position where we're defending hate speech. That's how I'm summing. The most succinct of the um, evening, Tom. 
just quickly on Michael's point about the legal thing, I mean, it would be a separate session to debate what the laws on marriage hatred should be and what not. Um, and to debate whether or not what it says at the university or how it applies to the law would be just a legalistic debate on who knows the law the best and as such. The point of the debate was more like the moral idea of free speech and safe spaces as a political issue rather than how it complies to the law. And so I guess, the, and also the final point that throughout the whole thing that's been portrayed as a, to be pro safe spaces is to be pro challenging bigotry. In reality, it, it's more, it's uh, shoving it under the rug, it's hiding it away. To really challenge bigotry, it needs to be heard out in the open and then challenged, the ideas challenged and picked apart, as has been constantly reiterated throughout the debate. Can we please uh, thank all of our speakers?